We are learning Daf Pedalad. We're starting from the bottom of Pegimul Amid Beis. We're analyzing from six lines up. Rashi Gamliel Omer. So we're talking about where a husband made a stipulation, uh, where he's telling his wife Arusa that he's not going to have any schusim in her nichsei melug, and he says specifically while you're alive and even after your death. So meaning he's saying that even though Meikar Adin the halacha is that a husband inherits the nichsei melug after the wife dies, but he is forfeiting that right. So the question is whether that stipulation is binding. Or Shemuel says that it is not binding um, and he still inherits her if she passes away because it's against what the Torah says. According to Shemuel Gamliel, the right for a husband to yarsh and his wife's property is from the Torah, it's Midoraitza. So his stipulation is against what it says in the Torah and anyone who's masna against what it says in the Torah, the stipulation is not valid. So the Gemara Paskin, the stipulation is not valid, but not for the reason that he said. So the Gemara tries to clarify the meaning of Rav's statement. What do we mean, but not because of his reason? Is it does, doesn't mean that basic halachas like him, that he inherits her even against his stipulation, but not according to his reason. holds that when a person makes a stipulation against what it says in the Torah, it's not valid, and that's why the husband inherits. Rav really holds normally that if a person is masna in a monetary issue against what it says in the Torah, you actually are able to make a tanai against what it says in the Torah. And this far being that since it's related to money, and money is nitin lemechila, it's a matter of what a person's preference is. So there is an ability for a person to make a tanai against what it says in the Torah. The reason here why it's different is because Rav holds that the right for a husband to inherit his wife is a, is a takana drabanan, and when it's a takana drabanan, ironically, it's harder to uproot it. Actually, rabbanan made the a greater strengthening for their halachos more so than the Torah halachos. So when it's a din then a person could stipulate against it. But when it's a din drabanan, actually, the rabbanan had to counteract the tanai and make their 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 legislation stronger, and to enforce it. They say that a person cannot even be masna against what they're saying. So you could be masna against what the Torah says. You can't be masna against what the Rabbanon said. So that's we end up passing like Rishon Megamliel, but not for his reason. He's saying the reason stipulation isn't binding is because it's the right saw. And if you're masna national custom of Torah, it's We hold that it's it's the Rabbanon and Hagufa. That's the vart. Since it's the Rabbanon, that's why it's a no battle. Because if you're masna. If you're masna against uh, the drabana, then that's why it's bottle. If you want to say that prop, but the Gemara says that can't be that way. Does Rav really hold that if a person makes a tanai against what it says in the Torah, the tanai is valid if it's a Torah? So we said, someone said this friend, he's selling him something. He says, only making the sale on condition that there's no fraud claims of ona. Ona is that if a person is overcharged, undercharged, more, less than a sixth, then it's. Uh, it, 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 it can't work because of the laws of Ona, a person's not allowed to cheat. So let's say a person says to his friend, I'm selling you something on condition that there shouldn't be any claims of uh, Ona against me. Rav, I'm Rachel Ona. The buyer still has a right to claim that, sub, that, the, 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 that, that such a thing wasn't a fair price because the Tanai against the Torah doesn't work. Shmuel says the buyer doesn't have the right to claim. So according to Rav, we see even though it's a monetary stipulation, since it's against what the Torah says, it's null and void. So we see that Rav does hold the Gershon Gamliel's idea that Masa Makashas Batara to know Bato. So we can't, we can't explain the Rav statement, Allah Gershon Gamliel, the way we said. 
Maybe you could say a different shot. Rav means that the stipulation against what it says in the Torah, the Tanai, is Batal. We pass him like that idea. However, it's not going to practically apply here. That if the wife dies, the husband inherits her because the stipulation is invalid against the Torah. Rav would hold the voice that the husband does not inherit her. Because he holds it's not a Torah law, then he inherits her. Therefore, the stipulation actually could be valid. So meaning we agree to the concept of Shemgamliel, but not the practical, uh, the practical uh, re- relevance here, because we hold, maybe Rav holds that the inheritance is only Durabanan. If the inheritance is only Durabanan, then tonight could be helping. However, we can't say that, because then the language that we said is off. That means we agree with the reasoning, but not the ruling. But we said the opposite, that Allah is but not because of the reasoning. So we're backwards in terms of what we're saying. So the Kumar tries another explanation. Ella, rather, Allah is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. The Amar, Imesa, Yerushan. Allah is like that if the wife dies, the husband does inherit her, even against the stipulation. It's not according to his reason. That it's only because it's a Doraisa. That's why the stipulation is void. The implication is that if it would be a Durabanan, then the stipulation would be valid. Mimushimgamlil sounds to be saying it's only because it's a Doraisa. That's why the Tanai is void. The implication is that if it would only be a Durabanan, the stipulation would be valid. For even in matters that are only Durabanan, the stipulation is void, meaning maybe they're arguing about something further than our case. Shemagamliel implies it's only because it's a Darais, the stipulation is void. It sounds like had it been a Durabanan, the stipulation would be, would be holding. Rav maybe came to say that even if it's a matter that's Durabanan, you can't be masked against what Durabanan say. But again, the language the Gemara doesn't accept. That means that we're really going complete with what Shemagamliel is saying, both his reasoning and his law. For Rav Mosifu, all that's going on is Rav is just adding to what Rishim Gamliel is saying, and he's saying that even if it would only be a Durabanan, the same halacha would be true. So the Gemara is saying that it, it, it doesn't sound from the language that Rav used that he's saying that he's agreeing to everything Rishim Gamliel said and just furthering it. It doesn't sound like that. So the Gemara tries again. The basic halacha is like Rishim Gamliel, if the wife dies, the husband inherits her against the stipulation. However, it's not according to the reason Rishim Gamliel said. If someone stipulates against the Torah, stipulation is void. For the husband, for his wife, is only on the And the Prat is that Rab is saying that supported their laws equal to the Torah. So Rishon Gamliel was saying, since it's against the Torah, that's why it's now tonight's battle. Rab is saying, really, it's only the Rabbanon. He reaches the vows only to Rabbanon, but he's saying that the Rabbanon made a chizik for what their enactments were equal to the laws of the Torah. So they end up agreeing, but for a different reason. Says the Gemara, is that really true though? Rav saw reaches the Rabbanon. Does Rav really hold that the Rabbanon, that their husband's right to inherit his wife is only the Khanat Rabbanon? But Tanan, it says in the Mishnah, someone who inherits his wife has to return the property to the members of her family at Yovel. So we know. At Yovel, all the lands that were sold or that go as a gift have to return to the previous ancestral owners. So if someone yarsh his wife, he returns it to the previous, the members of her family, and he deducts from the price for them. So what does that mean to say? It would sound like he's saying he sells it back to the wife's family at a good price. And we'll try to understand what that means as we go, as we go further. Avinabah, when we learned this, 
we asked Microsoft, what is which is about the rice? If it's a law that you should stop and inherit your wife on a rice level, my answer, why do you have to return? He has the right to inherit it. It's not like he bought it. All the things that were bought or gifted are returned. But something that you inherit doesn't have to be returned. And if the pshat is, holds that the husband inheriting his wife says, So then why you should have to return it? Because since it's drabanan, it's just like a gift. Meaning it's not an etzim din yurusha. Because it's only takana drabanan that he gets it. So therefore it's like a gift. So that's why it has to go back to the wife. So very good. But then he should have to return it and get no compensation. What's the pshat that he's being compensated at all? What did Rav say? Really, Rebbe holds the right to get it back, the right to get his wife's things as a Daraisa. However, the case was, we're talking about a case, one of the things he inherited was the ancestral graveyard, meaning he arched something very personal to his wife's family. And because of that, because it was easy, Arshin specifically like the burial plots, we say Mishum Pigamishbacha in order not to disgrace the wife's family. Because it's embarrassing that they lost, you know, the strangers are going to be burying themselves in that plot where it was really always their families. So because of the Pigam of the Mishbacha, Rabban said he should take payment and he should return the, the property. So basically, what's happening is the wife's family is demanding return of the property and, and return for money before Yovel so that they can bury their dead. It actually comes out, this doesn't really have anything to do with Yovel. It really is Yarshin's everything on a Daraisa level. It's a new Takana Drabanan that he's required to sell back to the wife's family a little bit in order that they shouldn't be disgraced. That is the concept over here. What do we mean he deducts the price? To make every issue, he deducts the value of his wife's grave because the husband actually is obligated to bury his wife, so he can't get reimbursed for her grave itself. So, what do we see all of this? Um, what we're seeing here. Is that is that Rav holds that Midaraisa, a person inherits a wife, and it's only Nutakana Drabana that he should return, he should return to the wife's family, the, the graveyard for, for a good price, specifically in order not to embarrass them. And we see this idea, like it says in the price of someone who sells a burial plot or the pastor's burial plot, the site that was going to be for his Maimid or for his eulogy. All these things are very highly personal. Um, these are where the funeral processions are taking place. So what happens is, the member of the families can come, you know, even though he sold it. He's, the, the person who passed away sold it willingly while he was alive. Still, the members of his family come after he passed away. They can bury him in that place with even against the buyer's consent. And again, the reason is not to disgrace the family. The idea is that you can take back the plot and reimburse the buyer. So Rav, we see, holds that a husband inherits his wife by Daraisa. So how could we say that it's a Zakhanah Drabanan? So the Gemara says, Rav, In the case that we were talking about, Rav was just explaining what Rav broke up. He himself didn't agree. Meaning, really, Rav's personal view is that a husband only inherits his wife on a Drabanan level. There, previously, the Halacha, that he returns on Yovel, Rav was explaining what Yochanan was saying. He's saying what Yochanan held. He reaches the Baal's Daraisa, but since he inherited the inherit the 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 burial plot, he returns him in order not to embarrass the family. So what we're coming out is that after all is said and done in this back, difficult back and take here, give and take here, we have Rabbi Yochum Roka saying, in our, uh, Rabbi Shem Gamliel saying in our Mishnah that a husband cannot stipulate he's not going to inherit his wife. And the reason is because the right to inherit one's wife is a Torah, right? So, and you can't make a stipulation against what it says in the Torah. The Rav Paskins like this Rabbi Shem Gamliel, but not for the reason. Rav actually holds that the right to inherit one's wife is only a Torah but Rav holds that the Rabbana made a chizuk for their enactment, and they said it has like a level of a daraisa that one is not able to make a tenai against the Rabbana as well. Okay, now we continue. 
Mishime, somebody dies. He leaves a wife who's going to marry a ksuba, a creditor who wants to be paid back, and Yarshim, he has heirs, and everybody wants, um, is claiming that the poor, there's a part of the estate that belongs to them. The wife has her ksuba, the creditor wants to be paid, and the heirs would just want to inherit. So what's the law? So, so what happens here is a little bit complicated, but because he has a deposit or a loan in the possession of somebody else, meaning the person who passed away had deposited something in the hands of somebody else or lent somebody else money. So he's leaving. So now the question is, is that could the widow or the creditor collect from them? Just to understand here a little bit, the halach is that a widow or a creditor can only take away from the yarshim um, we, we, we make them like make an oath. In other words, naturally, when a person passes away, the money passes as inheritance to the, to the Yarshim. If someone who's trying to take away from them has to make swearing and we make it difficult for them to collect. And that's what we'll do for the wife or the creditor. In this scenario, the deceased also had possessions that were in the possession of some, somebody else. So it's before the Yarshim ever had taken possession of it. So you know the Koshman are given to the weakest one among them, where it's either the widow or the creditor. The Gemara will talk about what that is. And what we're saying is, even though normally we say that movable items that are inherited by orphans aren't even owed to the debts or to the Ksuba, normally we say, forget about even making a Shavuah, even furthermore, we say that it's only real estate that the Yarshim inherit, that they have to give towards the, the, the Ksuba or, the, or to the creditor. But here we say that that's all if the orphans took possessions of it. But here, the orphans hadn't yet taken possession. Remember, it was in the, um, it was in the holding of, a, of another party. The father had deposited by somebody else. So since the orphans hadn't taken possession of it, so we're able to extract it from the debtor, and we can give it directly to the wife of the creditor. This is the idea that we're saying. It's fascinating, because even though technically the Yerusha should happen right away, but until there's some sort of collection on it, so we're saying that, that, that it can be given to the creditor or to the woman. That's the novelty of Rav Tarkin. In Merachmadin means we never try to apply mercy. The law is the law. The law, the law is that movables are not meshuva to the ksuba or to the bachov, and therefore there's no element of rachmim here. Ella, you know, the yarshin, everything is given to the heirs, and the idea that is given to the heirs is that now it's going to make that the creditor or the woman are not going to be able to collect from it. And even if it would be taken away, even if, what, let's say, the woman seized it forcibly, it doesn't, doesn't make anything. We give it back to the heirs. Why is that? The widow and the creditor always require an oath before they can collect, meaning it's not naturally theirs. They have to make a collection on it. And when they're taken away from the Yashem, they have to make a shvua. The heirs don't require an oath. It's naturally theirs. So that's what we're saying. We're saying that even though the metalton wasn't being held by the Yashem at the time of the death, we view it as being more naturally theirs because they don't, they don't have to require a shvua to collect on it, whereas the other parties do require a shvua. And therefore, we only, um, and therefore, it's almost, even if it wasn't in the possession of the Yarshim, we view it like it's by the Yarshim, and the other parties, therefore, cannot collect because Metatalim, again, are not owed towards the Baal or to the wife. A similar case in the Alpha Solution Let's say the deceased left produce that was already detached from the ground. So it's kind of like a free for all here. It's not in anybody's possession. We say whoever is the first one to seize it, they are, they are the ones who, um, who get possession over it. In other words, the produce isn't in the domain of the heirs. And therefore, if the heirs get it first, they get possession and movables aren't mortgaged to the creditor of the ksuba, no one can extract. But if the creditor of the wife gets it first, then they gain possession from it. Because again, we're going like Reptarphone, that if they seize it, even though it's after the death, it's a valid seizure. We don't yet view it as if it's in uh, the possession of the, like it's in the possession of the Arshim yet. 
Um, okay. It's also, it's also, if the wife had more than the amount that her exuba was owed, meaning she took a lot, more than she was owed about, if the creditor took more than the amount of his debts, so what do I do with the extra? It's given to the weakest one. Again, that we're saying it's given to the other party and not to the orphans, because since the orphans didn't debt, take it, before, then the, before the movable things are under their possession, then it could be given to the other parties. We're not merciful with it. was given to the heirs because again, it's naturally in their possession. The heirs don't require an oath; it's naturally by them. So we had two cases in the Mishnah, which are expressing the same idea. One is where somebody gave a milva or a pikadon, um, and then he passed away. So he has these movable rights that aren't under his possession. So says the Gemara, why do we have to talk about a case someone who has a loan and a deposit. They're both essentially the same thing. A person has rights to movable properties that aren't in their possession. Says the Mara Sweet was necessary to speak about both cases. You don't know that if we only spoke about the case of the loan, I could say maybe Tafran only said over there by the loan, um, there we would say that the heirs don't get it. And rather it goes to the weaker one, to the what to the wife or to the Bachol Mishmivla the loan is given to be spent. So meaning it's not really something that that that's a tangible item that we can say, oh, it's really the, the heirs at this point. The money that the father gave uh, the person to borrow was really meant to be spent and new monies will be repaid. So there we could say that it, it, it's not like the Yarshim have anything yet. By the deposit, it's still in, intact in the hands of the person holding it. That the heirs are the ones who naturally receive it. And if the Tana taught that case, only the case of Bikal, then I would say, well, come Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva only said over there, the heirs get it, because it's the same thing intact. In the case of the loan, maybe used to rep by the loan, that we wouldn't say that way, by the loan, we would say um, that maybe it could be given to the, to the, to the woman of Baal Chov. Both cases were necessary. So now we clarify what Rabbi Tafrin meant. We said Rabbi Tafrin says it's not in the possession of the Arshim. So therefore, it goes to the weaker one. My Lakosha, who's the weaker one? Is it the Balchov or is it the Isha? Whoever is the weakest proof. What does that mean, the weakest proof? So whichever one is holding the, the in their document, the one that's more recent, that's weaker because you can't take from real property from before that date. So since he's a weak, whichever one is a weaker right to collect, we'll give it to them. We feel more compassionate for them. It's always the wife's because of the favor, meaning... We always want to make sure that um, we want to make sure men find favor in the eyes of women, that they're not going to hold back from marrying them out of concern that it's going to be hard for them to collect the ksuba. So therefore, we always give it to the women quicker. Says the Gemara, in truth, this is actually It says in the Bride's room, whoever is the weaker proof of Hukasha, that's the right thing to do. It's given to the women's ksuba because of the favor. So we have a machlokas, who the weaker one is, um, as we see in the Bride's the second case was where in Ikhpair's solution, if the deceased person left produce that was already detached from the ground. So we said, whoever gets it first is first. And then we said, well, what if there's extra? Meaning, let's say, I know, let's say the woman took more than her ksuba. So we say, what do I do with the extra? Rabdafran says it's given to the Yukon, Rabkiva says it's given to the Yarshan. Says the Gemara, Rabkiva, Mayor Moses, why are we only talking about the surplus, whatever is left extra? Kulunami Yarshim, even the basic produce goes to the Yarshim. Meaning, let's say the woman took what is the amount of the ksuba, according to Rabbi Akiva. It's not meant to be kept by the woman, it should have to go to the to the to the Arshim. So why is Rabbi Kiva seemingly only saying that what's extra from the Ksuba goes to the Arshim? Even the amount of the Ksuba that the that the wife took, it should be taken away from her and given to the Arshim because it's 
It's metaltalim according to Rabbi Yitar, Rabbi Tarf and his view is metaltalim at the Yorsham own, which is not Meshavit to the Ksuba. So the Gemara answers in Achanami. You're right, really, you're right. According to Rabbi Kiva, all the produce goes to the Yorsham. But I did not Rabbi Tarf and Mosar, since Rabbi Tarf mentioned Mosar, Rabbi Kiva spoke about the Mosar as well. But in Achanami, um, according to Rabbi Akiva, actually, even whatever they took, even the basic amount, we would take away from them and give back to the Yorsham. Because again, the idea is that according to Rabbi Akiva, it's automatically owned by the Yorsham. And therefore, Metatum is not Meshuvid, and um, we would take it away. Rabbi Akiva, Tfisal, Mahanya, Klau, Frank the Gemara. Is there any case in Rabbi Akiva where, where seizing property does accomplish anything? Meaning, if it's seized after the death, so what are we saying? According to Rabbi Akiva, it's not valid at all. We take it away from them. But is there any case that Rabbi Akiva would hold that seizing property does accomplish something? If the creditor took the property while the father was still alive, then he could keep it even after the father's death. In other words, Rabbi Akiva would concede in that case. If it was seized while the father was still alive, before he died, then it can be kept after he dies. Okay, so that's, in other words, the machlokas that we're narrowing is only when the tefisa was made after the death of the father. But if the Rabbi Akiva would concede that if the tefisa was made while the father was still alive, then it can be kept. Says the Gemara of Tarfon, according to Reb Tarfon, that we're saying that the tefisa um, helped after the father's death. Man Where is the, the where is it after the father dies that we're saying the Tfisa helps? Meaning clearly if it's Mamish by the Yarshim, the Yarshim are holding it and they take it away from them, Tfisa doesn't help. Matatam are not Meshubit. But we're saying it must be in some sort of neutral zone where Tfisa can help. Where is this? It's like if it's in a public domain. That's where we say the Yarshim don't have possession over it at the time of death, and that's why the Tfisa can help. If it was in a Simta, when the father dies, it wouldn't apply. What is a Simta? A Simta is a somewhat private area. It's near the Shazarabim, but it's a private area where people want to make transactions, people want to make Kinyanim, they do it there. And the idea is it's all made for, for private transactions to take place. So if it was in a simta, Reb Tarfon's rule wouldn't apply. It's automatically considered to be in the possession of the heirs. And therefore, um, it would be metatum, not meshubit. Even if it's in a simta, as long as it's not physically like real, real private Kenyan that was taking place by the Arshim, then there's still a place, according to Reb Yochum Rishlakish, for Reb Tarfon's opinion to say that Tfisa could help. Says, well, how do we pass in everything Reb Tarfon, Reb Kiva? Again, the fundamental machlokas. Everyone agrees to Atlam, Meshubit, Luxuba, but what about if it wasn't yet in the possession of the Yarshim. Could Tfisa help then? So Dundani Kareb Tarifon, there was a case where, again, a Balchov took movable property after the debtor's death, and they took it from the, before the Yarshim had a chance to actually hold it. And Ma'adri reversed the decision, meaning he went like Rabbi Akiva, that the Tfisa is not valid. He made Rabbi Akiva's Allah like it's like a din in the Torah, like it's like Allah HaMashim Sinai. So meaning to say, Maybe after the fact that it was taken, we should go like Rabbi, Ta- Rabbi Tarfan and we should allow them to keep it. So what's the question? So, Originally, we held that Rishlakish held that if a judge makes a mistake about something that's in a Mishnah, you should switch the verdict. So since we realize Rabbi Akiva is, is in the Mishnah, so even though we initially ruled like Rabbi Tarfan, we should reverse it once we see Rabbi Akiva disagrees. Someone who makes a mistake about something in the, that's clear in the Mishnah, you shouldn't reverse it. So basically, there's an idea of Mishnah. When a judge makes a mistake, even if it wasn't the right thing, but once it was done, it was done. So the Shaila is, if it's a mistake about something that's in the Mishnah, do we say, okay, clearly you should have known better. It's not a real judgment. 
It's just not knowing the Mishnah well, and therefore you should be chozer and, uh, and, and reverse the decision. So if you say, Tabatvar Mishnah chozer, when we realize that the opinion of Rabbi Kiva is correct, you should reverse the verdict. Rabbi Yochan says, Tabatvar Mishnah should not reverse the verdict, and we should say that once it was already seized, we should follow through with Rabbi Kiva's position. So the Gemara says, Lo, it's not like that. Everybody agrees that if you make a mistake about something that's clear in a Mishnah, you could reverse the verdict. We're arguing about this point. Even though normally Lalach is like Rabbi Kiva against his colleague, but not necessarily against his against his Rebbe. And Rabtarfon was Rabbi Kiva's Rebbe. So a psak like Rabtarfon isn't wrong. In other words, we're just trying to figure out if it's wrong or it's a mistake, but maybe the whole thing is not wrong. Because even though normally we go like Rabbi Kiva, maybe that's not over his Rebbe. Always goes like Rabbi Akiva, even against his Rabbi. So therefore, anything against Rabbi Akiva is like going against the Mishnah, and therefore it should be reversed. Everybody agrees. We pass on like Rabbi Akiva against um, against the colleague, but not against his teacher. But the question is, what was the nature of the relationship between Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tafan Rabbah? Look at this, what they were arguing about. Marsa Rabbi Tafan Rabbah, Rabbi Tafan Rabbah, Rabbi Akiva's teacher. Marsa Rabbi Tafan Rabbah, Rabbi Akiva's colleague. So that's the machlok, it's just simply whether or not in Psaq we go like Rabbi Akiva here. Everyone agrees Rabbi Akiva's colleague. They're arguing about this matter. There's a against his colleague, and therefore anything against that is wrong. It just means we lean on that. Meaning, it's not for sure true that we go like Rabbi Akiva, it's just that we lean towards that. But if for whatever reason it wasn't done that way, we wouldn't overrule and uh, reverse the decision. Okay, so again, now we give more stories to figure out if the Psaq here is like Rabbi Tafan, Rabbi Kiva, Karebi, Rabbi Yochanan, there's a relative Rabbi Yochanan. Again, a dead or a died, and, and what happened was, Taf was para, Yasmin and Simta, they took a cow, they seized a cow that was inherited by the orphans from a Simta. So if you go like Rabbi Akiva, so then we have to return it to the Arshim. If you go like Rabbi Tafan, then the, then, then the creditor could keep us. Look, Rabbi Yochanan came for Rabbi Yochanan. Amalei, Rabbi Yochanan said, Shabbat they seized it properly. It's okay that they seized it. Um, it's okay that we seized it, and, and, and therefore it can be kept. So I'm uh, so go return it. Why? Because we passed on the Rabbi Akiva. They came back and from Rabbi and they told him, Everybody argues on me. So meaning, if you're arguing with me, and you're passing like Rabbi Akiva, then okay, what should we do? Says the Gemara, who backed the Asmi? There was a, once a a herdsman, someone who holds on to the cattle of the orphans, the Tasi Turmine, and they took away the. Ox from them. In other words, the the orphans had a had their father had a creditor, and he came and he seized the ox away from their back or from their herdsmen. So the creditor said, at the time I took it away when it was still alive. Meaning, we even if we go like Rabbi Akiva, that seizure by the Balchov after after the uh, the death of the father is not valid. But he says, hey, I took it while the father was still alive. Or even Rabbi Akiva agrees that Tfisa is effective. So that's what the creditor was saying. But the herdsman said, No, it's not true. He only took it after the father's death, and therefore it should be returned to the Yisom. So I still come to Rachel, and I came to Rachel, and Amalei, he said to the herdsman, Do you have any witnesses that he ever took it? Amalei love. He says, No, I don't have witnesses he took it. Amalei Rachel said, So then you believe him. Why? If you don't have witnesses that he took it away forcibly, the creditor can always say, I bought it. And since you can make a claim that he bought it because there's no witnesses that he seized it, 
forcibly, so it's just in his possession now. He could make a claim that I bought it, so therefore, even if he's not saying that, he's claiming that he seized it during the lifetime of the father, he's believed. He's able to say, also, he seized it during the father's lifetime. This is the principle of Migu. Migu is, if you're going to lie, lie better. So here, if there were no witnesses that he seized it, for, that he seized it forcibly, he could have always just said, I bought it. So Migu, that he could have said he bought it, he is Nemon to say that I was Tofes at Mechaim. Says the Gemara question, animals do not have chazaka. In other words, normally if a person is holding something, possession of something indicates that it's actually yours. So if someone's holding something that's a movable item and they claim they bought it, they're always believed. However, animals which move on their own from place to place, there's no principle of chazaka. And what's the reason? Because it's not, normally we say the reason we believe someone who's claiming they bought it when they're holding something is because how else did it move? Things don't move on their own. But if it's something which does move on its own, like an animal, then we say, what are you talking about? Maybe it just moved on its own. And it's not, there's no indication just because you're holding it, that's not proof that of your ownership. So if that's true, so why are we saying there's a migu that they could, the, the creditor could say, I bought it, why? Animals don't know chazaka. We should go after the marakam of the previous owner and we would take it away from someone saying that he bought it. He says, the Gemara Shani Torah, a big ox is different. The Messiah of the Rose, given over to a herdsman who guards it. So the point that we're saying is, is that, um, Small animals walk on their own and, and, and therefore there's no proof that you bought it just because you're holding it. But if you're talking about a big ox that's given over to a herdsman, we're not going to assume it would move on its own. And therefore, someone who it is in their possession would be never to say he bought it. And that's why now that he's saying, I seized him, Mechayim, he has a migu that he's Nema. Says the Gemara, another story, to be in see the people in Nasi's house. And here again, the dead or die. Tafos Simta. They seized a maidservant that was inherited by the, morphin, by the orphans, and they seized it from a Simta. So again, same child, Rekiva and Rabta from here. So Yasser, Rabba, 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 they were all sitting in Joshua. Yasser, Rabba was with them. Amalu, the judge said, to the to, to to the Nazis people, Shabbat Shalom. You see, is good. Amalur Rabba Rabba said, "Mishum Benisia Ninu Rachaftelu." Just because from the house of the Nazis, you're flattering them. What are you talking about? For Adun Danet Reb Tarfon, it once happened that we went like Reb Tarfon and we passed in that the seizure was good. And what did we do? Hadri Rishalkesh of the Menai. Rishalkesh reversed the decision. So what do we see? That we passed in like Rebbe Akiva. And even after the fact, or after we did like Reb Tarfon, we reversed the decision. We put it back by the by 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 the orphans because of the Psaq of Rabbi Akiva, and therefore you as well should be honoring this idea. And even though initially you did that way, one uh, doesn't make a difference. We should return it and go that and return it to the orphans because the halacha is like Rabbi Akiva.